We've been studying in the book of James. We've come to chapter 2. One of the main reasons for the writing of the book of James was because James was concerned that many of the people said they were Christians, but they didn't really live totally like they ought to be living as Christians. He was not opposing Paul's view of faith, as some seem to think. There are those who think that faith and works are totally opposite things. What James is really saying is that if you have a genuine living faith, then you will have works because your heart and life will be changed. So when he didn't see the evidence of that change, he was concerned. So there's no real conflict between the book of James and the teachings of Paul, as in Ephesians. It's a further understanding as we put the scriptures together. We're here in the beginning of chapter 2. We find him dealing with one particular issue that he'd evidently observed in the church. Now, next Sunday, we want to hit the thing head on in the classic section, the last half of, the, of chapter 2. But today he focuses on one particular issue, that of discriminating in favor of the rich and against the poor. Chapter 2, then, of James, beginning in verse 1. My brothers, and he means sisters, of course, as well, Do not have the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Because if there comes into your assembly a man with a gold ring and in good clothing, there also comes in a poor man in filthy clothing. And you have respect to him who wears the gay clothing, and you say to him, You sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit here under my footstool. Are you not then partial in yourselves, and you are become judges of evil thoughts? Pay attention, my brothers, beloved. Has not God chosen the poor of this world, who are rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them who love him. But you have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by the which you are called? If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors, because whoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in just one point, he is guilty of everything. Because he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not kill. Now if you commit no adultery, yet if you kill, you are become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do 
as they who shall be judged by the law of liberty. Because he shall have judgment without mercy, who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs or rejoices against judgment. That's quite a section there, and it focuses on impartiality. Now, going back to verse 1, tells us not to have the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ in this respect that he was observing it. God has once for all given us the faith. We are to believe it, we are to propagate it, we are to live by it. God has told us what he has done. He sent the Lord Jesus, God's son. He not only lived a perfect life and taught us the truths of God, but ultimately he gave his life a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And note it wasn't just for the rich that he died, he died for the poor as well. Those who have shabby clothes and maybe sometimes aren't able to bathe and have odors about them. Imagine God loved the whole world, rich, poor, and all those in between. And so when we put our faith in Jesus, we are to have an impartiality in our love that reaches out to people. He was observing their practice was not reflecting that. But notice the faith is of our Lord Jesus Christ, who it says is what? The Lord of glory. Now that's an amazing statement, is it not? Jesus Christ, God's son, is the Lord of glory. Sometimes in our songs we think about glory land. We're thinking of heaven. We're thinking of the glory that is there. We think of the angels. We think of God. We think of a perfect place without sin. We think of a place where the angels and all creation, as it were, worships God. He's the Lord of glory. That's who Jesus is. We need to have our eyes open to understand this. You know, as I was thinking about that, I thought of how it expresses it in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews, we find chapter 1, beginning about the middle of verse 2. It's talking about God's son, Jesus. And it says, he has appointed him heir of all things by whom also he made the worlds. Through Jesus, you see, things were created. Who being the brightness of his glory and the exact image of his person. Remember he said, he was seen me as seen the Father and upholding all things by the word of his power. All things hold together by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. When he had by himself cleansed our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So what a beautiful picture of Jesus, the Lord of glory. It's good to focus on this as we live our lives, to think of who he is and of his glory, and he's in charge of it all. And he is creator. 
and he is set down on the right hand of the majesty on high in the place of authority and power. He is God, along with Father and Holy Spirit. Revelation 19.16, it says he is king of kings. Of all the kings of the earth, he's the king of them. And Lord of lords, of all the mayordomos, of all the leaders, of all the bosses, he's the boss of them. He's in charge. What a wonderful thing to think. And we see that he is impartial, for he chides them if they would respect people above others. And what he does, he goes into a very vivid illustration here, beginning in verse 2. If there comes in to your assembly, into our church, as we're gathered, a man who has a gold ring, and in rich apparel, goodly apparel, in other words, someone comes in, you can tell he's, he's well-to-do. He's got the trimmings of well-to-do-ness. He drives up maybe in a Lamborghini, Maybe he has a servant or two that accompanies him in. We've probably never seen this, but, you know, it could happen. But the point is, somehow you know this person is a well-to-do person. Maybe you just know who he is. Realize he's one of the financial titans of the community. So when you see him, oh boy, great that he's here. We'll really treat him nice. So as it were, you welcome him, you pat him on the back, you make sure that he's welcome uh, in all ways. On the other hand, somebody kind of sneaks in the back and he's smelly and his clothes are torn. He looks like he's in bad shape. And you kind of feel uncomfortable that he's even here and you had him sit off in a corner someplace or maybe stand in the back there. Of course, we don't do that, do we? But apparently they were doing this kind of thing. And they were therefore discriminating for the rich and against the poor. And he says, don't do that. If you're doing it, verse 4, you were, aren't you then partial in yourselves and become judges of evil thoughts? You can see what he's saying, can't you? If somebody came like that and you gave him special treatment, you rolled out the red carpet, on the other hand, the other kind of person came, and you put him down, as it were, you're being partial. But God loved them all, didn't he? He loved the rich, he loved the poor, he loved those in between. And you kind of gather here, he's talking about those who profess to be Christians, or why would they come into the assembly? At least they would be apparently seeking the truth. Now, I realize that sometimes we have people today and they come looking for handouts. I think that puts things in a little bit different light. But in an ordinary sense, God loves everybody. Judges of evil thoughts, verse 4. Remember Jesus said, don't be judges, don't be judging. You're going to be judged with the same judgment that you put upon others. And then going to verse 5, hearken or pay attention, listen, listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, 
and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them that love him. God has chosen. That gives us a very interesting thought, does it not? Now in verse 7, it speaks about that worthy name by which we are called. Called and chosen. There is a choosing that God does in his grace and love and mercy in reaching out to us. Even when we were sinners, it says, he loved us. Now in 2 Timothy, it talks about this choosing aspect of things. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Then if you go back to Ephesians chapter 4, first verse says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, ask you that you walk worthy of the vocation or calling wherewith you are called. So he encourages them and us, you've been called by God into a new life, into everlasting life, into being his children. In spite of our failings, God has forgiven us and we're his children. Let's live accordingly, he says. Walk according to the calling wherewith you have been called. And that's probably a better translation than the old King James vocation. Basically the same Greek word. So thank God we're called. The poor, rich in faith. Yes, they may be poor physically. They may not have a bunch of money. They may not even have enough clothes and food. But if they're rich in faith, God has received them. And who's really better off in God's sight? The rich man or the poor man who's rich in faith? (laughs) Well, I think you know the answer to that. It's the poor man, rich in faith, the poor person who trusts God and receives from God. They are heirs of the kingdom. He's promised that to those who love him, it tells us here in verse 5. Does God stand behind his promises? Well, he certainly does, does he not? One of the reasons we're here is, I believe, because we believe that. He's promised it. It's not just a hope. It's not just, well, I hope so. Someday maybe it'll be true. It doesn't work that way. When God promises something, God keeps his promise. Unlike a lot of times people. They'll say something and comes right down to it. They don't do it at all. God says it. He'll do it. Verse 6, but you have despised the poor. Don't rich men oppress you and drag you before the judgment seats? Don't they blaspheme that worthy name, that worthy name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which you are called? Yes, they do these things. To them who love him, you see. If you love him, you trust him. You live for him. If you love him, there's a hunger for God in your heart. 
Years ago, I was impressed by the book of Luke, chapter 1, where it talks in verses 52 and 3, this way, 52 and 53 of Luke chapter 1. He has put down the strong, the mighty, from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. That's reflected right here, is it not, in our passage today, the first part of of James. Now notice in verses 6, through nine, what it says here. You have despised the poor. Don't rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Don't they blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? If you fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. In Acts 10.34, we see that God was impartial. He accepted Gentiles as well as Jews. The incident of Cornelius. God gave the example of being impartial. As we said before, he so loved the world. But what's he talking about here? The, The royal law has something to do with love, does it not? As it says here. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Actually, that's in the Old Testament, is it not? It's easy to remember. It's the year the First World War ended, 1918, the book of Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, some people get the idea, well, I'm not supposed to love myself. Jesus assumes you do. And to a certain degree, you need to. And everybody but it says love others as much as you're loving yourself. You take care of yourself, you feed yourself, you clothe yourself, you do other things to benefit yourself. So also then, we should love our neighbor like that. So it's a good example of it. But it's called a royal law, a law from the court of heaven, a very important law. In fact, Jesus said it's the second most important law there is. First one is to love God wholeheartedly. Second one is this, the royal law, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then later he added another one, a new command, to love each other like he loved us and showed us what true godly love really is. Verse 10, whoever shall keep the whole law And yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Now we'll come back to that. For he who said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not murder. Now if you commit no adultery, yet if you murder, you are to become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do, as they who shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs against judgment. 
But what about this thing that if you've just broken one of the laws, you're guilty of everything? Well, that's a little bit like you have a beautiful hand-painted vase. You accidentally knock it down, maybe on the table, and just a little bit of it's broken, maybe the lip of it or just a little part of it is chipped. It doesn't have to be broken into smithereens, a hundred pieces to be broken. Even if it's broken only a little teeny bit, it's broken. And so that's what God's telling us about his law, the Old Testament law especially. You don't have to break all the commands, all the things that we're told to observe and, and not to do, to be guilty. He says, just one, <laughs> you've broken it. Even if it's just a little teeny bit is all you know about. If you really knew, you might discover it's a lot more than that. <laughs> but what's the point? The point is the law brings us to understand that we have failed the commands of the Lord. We've all broken the law. Maybe we're only aware of a small amount, but there's a lot more we may not be aware of as well. Doesn't make any difference in a way. You've broken it, you've broken it. So what does that mean? It means we're all sinners. <laughs> means we're all in need of forgiveness. We're all in need of everlasting life from the Lord. And when we trusted him, guess what? It happens. He's promised it. And we've seen that he keeps his promises. So when we repent and put our faith in the Lord Jesus, boom, we become God's children. We're his. We have eternal life. We have full forgiveness. We have a place in glory. We'll be with the Lord of glory. But this royal law is something we need to observe. The law of love, loving our neighbor, loving others. And you know, there's a real benefit that comes to us when we do that. First John chapter five, here's what it says in verse three. This is the love of God that we keep his commands and his commands are not grievous. They aren't burdensome. It's not a big problem. It's a little bit like the parent taking care of the little baby. There may be messy things. There may be inconvenient things you need to do, but love can power you through. If you have love, then the commands it says are not grievous. They're not burdensome. So we need that love. We need that royal love from the court of heaven that God gives to us. Now it's also to, good to realize something, namely that a lot of people in the world, maybe most of them, if they believe in an afterlife, if they believe in a judgment of God to come after we die, they think it works like this, that somehow there's a big giant scale and on that big scale, God takes our every thought and deed and he puts it on the good side or the bad side. And they think throughout our life, God is doing this and he's keeping track of everything. And then when we come to the time of judgment, the way it tips, that's the way God decides. 
If the good deeds outweigh the bad, then you get to go to heaven. If the bad deeds outweigh the good, then you go the other direction. Isn't that how a lot of people really figure it works? And that's kind of a natural way of looking at it. It would seem to us that that's the way it ought to be. But when you study the scripture, what do you find out? It's not that way at all. It's not a basis of good weight against bad. It's a basis of we're all bad, we've all done bad things, and those things have to be atoned for. That's why Jesus had to die. He died for the sins of the world. He took the sentence, the penalty that sin justly deserved. He took that upon himself. One of the things I'm impressed in the scripture about God, Jeremiah spoke about it in chapter 9, verse 1. God's righteousness. He said, oh Lord, I know that you're righteous. That's not the only place in the Bible. It's all over the Bible, as it were. God is just. God is fair. God's judgment is totally 100% accurate. God knows everything. And everything you see can be weighed in the balance, as it were. And the balance then says we fail, but when we trust Christ, we are forgiven. God gives us, by grace, unmerited, undeserved favor, forgiveness, and eternal life in a place in glory. And so we're to love one another. We're to know that God was impartial. We know that he loved everybody. We're broken, but he's instituted a new covenant, a new testament, fulfills and supersedes the Old Testament. We observe this when we have communion. It's in his blood that this happened. God has done that for us. But we also see in the passage about the law of liberty. Now, last Sunday, I think I touched on that as well. It's found in the preceding chapter. It's found in this chapter, the law of liberty. In this new covenant, this new testament, there's a liberty, a freedom over sin and away from sin. We become God's servants willingly, and in that is true freedom. That's quite a paradox, isn't it? True freedom is to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ to be freed from the things that are wrong and to be liberated and to live for him, to be liberated by true love, the royal law and the law of liberty. Now it points out that those that are not merciful, (laughs) they're gonna discover that they get judged. On the other hand, those who have a genuine faith and are merciful and they care about people and help them, mercy, conquers, it triumphs over non-mercy. God is gracious to us. Cornelius had been a moral and good man, as it were, even though he was a Gentile. God then got to see that he heard the gospel and believed in Jesus and was saved. Peter would come and tell him words whereby he and his household would be saved. Acts 
14. And so we find one particular thing highlighted here in the first half of James 2, the sin of being partial in the sense that we see here described. And we learn that God was impartial. His judgment is just. He is righteous. Not only said by Jeremiah, but in Psalms and many other places. Our God is a just judge. He's fair. We can't complain about the justice that he brings out. It's a justice according to truth. Justice according to mercy. And justice according to grace. Because he paid the penalty. Justice is not set aside. Justice is completed. Justice was executed upon his son Jesus. Voluntarily he took it upon himself. So justice was fulfilled. And we receive it as a gift. We trust him. We come here hopefully presenting our bodies and our souls to him as a gift responding to his great gift. We willingly become his servants. We willingly decide we're going to live for Jesus from now on. We don't have to have a thousand people to make that decision. All starts with one, ourselves. Is it not true? And so I hope this study in James today and the classical one next Sunday and the rest of the book and what we have already studied will be a blessing and encouragement to you to willingly offer yourself as a servant and follower of Jesus. May we have a prayer of dedication. Lord, we thank you for this book. Even though sometimes people that or strong into faith, don't understand what James is really doing. He's not so much pronouncing on works as he is on faith. He's talking about a living faith, not a dead faith. A faith that transforms. A faith by which we may live day by day a faith that takes us to heaven, a living, vital faith, a genuine faith. May we have that kind of faith, Lord. May we see the evidence in our lives. And may our spirit, along with your spirit, bear witness that it is such. Give us your love, that evidence that we know you and have been transformed. Give us the kind of love that reveals itself in action. We pray for those who aren't here today. We think of several, whatever their needs might be. We thank you they love you and pray you'd help them. Whatever their needs are, that you'd meet those needs. Thank you for the rain. Thank you for your blessing. Thank you for your help in all things. We would now dedicate ourselves to you. May it be, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.